0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the first ever episode of Killer Cases, a series that focuses on murder cases from rise to demise. The case today focuses on a lesser-known killer of the Florida area, Eileen Warnos, a tragic life that came to a tragic end. While most people don't know about this case by name, a lot of people are aware of the movie it inspired, titled Monster a 2003 movie that won many awards. I chose this case because of how close it hits for not only Florida, but for Daytona as well. Most of us here at Riddle are probably unaware of this case, because it was way back in 1993, but the trial was actually held right here in Volusia County. So without further ado, let's get into the first American female serial killer herself, the I-95 killer, Eileen Warnes. Eileen Warnos, originally Eileen Pittman's life, began with a spark of cruelty in 1956. Born to a 17-year-old single mother and a father incarcerated for the rape and attempted murder of a minor, by the age of four, her mother would also abandon her and her brother to the care of their grandparents. She would end up never meeting her father, for he would end up dying in prison by the time she was 13 years old. Now, this is the point where we see the first red flags in her life that could negatively push her towards not only psychological issues, but towards a violent criminal lifestyle. According to studies, there is an increase in violent crime rates among people who have been separated from one or both parents at a young age. A lot of people believe this is because the relationship between parent and child is foundational and sets the stage for further ability to create healthy relationships later in life. So when that is severed, it fundamentally harms them psychologically. So going by that, Eileen started out with heightened risk factors when it comes to not only crime, but psychological issues. But they would only increase from there. A few months after being taken in by their grandparents, Eileen and her brother were legally adopted by them, changing their last name to Warnos solidifying a new, secure living situation and household for them. Unfortunately, their grandparents were both alcoholics. The grandfather regularly physically and sexually abusing Eileen and her brother. According to Eileen, he would force her to strip naked before beating and sexually assaulting her. By age 11, she was having a sexual relationship with her brother and trading sexual favors at school for cigarettes, drugs, and food. When she was 14, she was raped by a friend of her grandfather's and became pregnant. She followed through with the pregnancy and later that year gave birth to a baby boy that soon after was put up for adoption. After that, it wasn't long before she dropped out of high school and a few months later, her grandmother died. By the age of 15, her grandfather kicked her out of the house and she was left to try and find a way to support herself. Given not much options at 15 with no transportation or support system, she turned to prostitution. It wasn't until 1974 that her criminal record began when she was arrested for driving under the influence, disorderly conduct, and buying a gun from a moving vehicle. Warnos made her way to Florida in early 1976. That was an eventful year for her as she got married, got a restraining order put against her by her husband, and got life insurance for her brother dying of cancer. She also got her marriage annulled, all within the first seven months of that year. Now this is important because this is the first real relationship we see her have on record, and not only did it last only very briefly, but it involved a claim of abuse by her onto her husband, hitting him with his own cane. Not only that, but in the same year, she loses the only other person that she could have had a connection with in her family, her brother. At this point in her life, we are beginning to see the damage her childhood had on her psychologically. Throughout 1981 to 1986, we see her crimes quickly escalate from drunk driving to armed robbery, theft of a revolver, And finally, car theft. A few months later, Eileen meets her girlfriend, Tyra Moore, at a gay bar in Daytona. This is actually one of the long-term relationships we see her maintain as the two later move in together. They are both arrested that year for assault and battery using a beer bottle. It is after this where Eileen actually has a few quiet years with her girlfriend. No crimes on record and no issues or run-ins with law enforcement. Before that all ends, in 1989, when she commits her first murder. Victim number one, Richard Mallory, age 51, from Clearwater, Florida. He was the first one to fall victim to Wuornos. It was November 30th, 1989, that Richard picked up Eileen. According to Wuornos, shortly after picking her up, he attempted to rape her, and it was only then that she shot him in self-defense. She shot him first while he was at the front seat, and the second and third time after he stumbled out of the car. According to her own statement, her thoughts through it all was, I figured, well, if I help the guy and he lives, he's going to tell on me, and I'm going to get arrested for attempted murder, and all this jazz, she said, and I thought, well, the best thing to do is to keep shooting him. His body would be found two weeks later in a junkyard. Now, I am unable to say exactly how that night went down, only what was claimed by the surviving party and the resulting evidence, so I cannot speak to whether or not Richard Mallory did attempt to rape Warnos that night. I will say, though, that Mallory had a history as a sex offender, having already previously been charged with assault with the intent to rape after being arrested in 1957. Despite not being able to say whether her allegations are true or a cover story, it is my belief that whatever transpired that night led to the decline of Eileen's mental state and kicks off the rest of the murders. Victim number two, David Spears, age 43 from Sarasota, reported missing May 19, 1990. David was on his way to visit his ex-wife and kids in Winter Garden, New Orlando, when he picked up Warnos. It was June 1st, 1990, when his body was found in Citrus County, Florida. Unlike the first victims, Mr. Spears was found nude off the side of the road, probably where he had been shot. With Mr. Spears, there was clear signs of overkill as she shot him six times in the chest. According to Warrenos, Spears threatened her as well. This victim, however, had no history of violence or malice towards women as he was even providing for his current ex-wife. On this case, because of that, and the testament by loved ones, the public was less inclined to believe this allegation, whether it be true or false. Her statement on this murder, and her thoughts throughout, was, I thought, what the hell you think you're doing, dude? You know I'm going to kill you because you were trying to do whatever you could with me. And I shot him through the door, and then he kind of went back and I went right through to the driver's side and shot him again, and he fell back. Victim number three, Charles Carscadden, age 40, a rodeo worker. Charles' body was found June 6, 1990, nude in a secluded area in Pasco County, covered by a heating blanket. He had been shot eight or nine times by Ornos. By the time the body had been found, It was so badly decomposed that it delayed identification of the body by the police. The decomposition of the body made it so bad that the ME couldn't even determine the height of the victim before death. Victim number four, Troy Burris, age 50, a salesman from Ocala, Florida, reported missing July 31st, 1990. On August 4, 1990, four days after being reported missing, his body was found in Marion County, Florida, on the side of the road near State Road 19. Because of the heat and humidity that Florida is known for, it sped up the rate of decomposition, and it is only because of its proximity to where his truck was found and his distinct wedding ring that he was able to be identified. His cause of death showed way less overkill than the two previous victims because unlike the last two victims that were shot way more times than necessary, Troy was only shot twice in the abdomen before being placed in the woods. She accused Troy of attacking her and laughing at her during this attack. Victim number five, Charles Dick Humphreys, age 56, former police chief and state child abuse investigator, reported missing September 11th, 1990. His body was found the next day on the side of the road. It is believed by some that Mr. Humphreys was actually trying to help her leave the prostitute life when he picked her up. The kill of Mr. Humphreys closely resembled David Spears as they were both shot six times. I find this interesting because the two victims that have been described as the least likely to have tried to attack her in the eyes of the public were both shot six times. She was even quoted saying the reason she shot Humphreys as many times as she did was because she had to, quote-unquote, put him out of his misery. Victim number six. Walter Janelle Antonio, the last confirmed victim. Walter was a 62-year-old truck driver and police reservist from Merritt Island. His body was found naked in Dixie County, on the side of the road, just like the others. On November 19, 1990, he had been killed by being shot three times in the back, and one time in the head. His car was found five days later across the state all the way in Brevard County, a county east of Orlando. While that is all of Eileen's confirmed victims, there is a missing person who is believed to be the seventh victim in the case a 65-year-old man by the name of Peter Seams. Because of the date of his disappearance, June 1990, and when his car was found, we could estimate his murder to be in between that of Karskaden and Burris. The reason his murder cannot be confirmed is because we have never been able to locate his body. Therefore, the state decided against following through with pressing charges. This is despite the fact that her fingerprints were found on his vehicle handles after her girlfriend and her abandoned it. January 9th, 1991, Warnus was arrested at the Last Resort Bar in Port Orange. Upon the arrest, she was not told about any of the outstanding murder charges, but instead of a few minor outstanding charges that were unrelated to the murder case. Her girlfriend, on the other hand, was later found all the way in Pennsylvania. According to both Warnos and Moore, Moore was not a part of any of the murders and was only told once about the very first one. These were the claims, at least despite multiple witnesses seeing both of them leaving the crime scenes together. Over the course of the next few days after Warnos' arrest, Moore made a deal to conduct a series of multiple telephone calls to help the police build a case. During her confessions, she at one point claimed that the reason she killed and robbed all those men is to help to support her and her girlfriend's lifestyle. This was supported by the fact that with every man she murdered, she had taken their wallet, valuables, and car. Throughout the trials, she did not do much to help her case, often having random outbursts. Throughout her two trials, her lawyers had to invoke the Fifth Amendment 25 times. For anyone unaware of the Fifth Amendment, or just needs a refresher, the Fifth Amendment is the right against self-incrimination. She also proceeded to take the stand to testify, but because she couldn't answer a large amount of the questions posed to her by the prosecution, she wound up looking more guilty in the eyes of the jury. She was sentenced with the death penalty via the electric chair after the first trial for the murder of Mallory. Then, because of the first trial and how badly it went, she pled guilty or no contest to the rest of the six murders. So, because she was given the death penalty, Florida, along with some other states, required the jury to go through a list of aggravating and mitigating circumstances. Aggravating being circumstances that make it worse and make it more likely for her to get the death penalty and mitigating as in making it better or absolving her from the death penalty her aggravating circumstances are as follows the first one being Warnos had a previous felony conviction involving the use or threat of violence she had multiple of these convictions including the armed robbery Two. Murder was committed during the commission of a robbery. Because she stole so many things from the people that she killed, it, they considered it as part of a robbery. Number three, murder was committed in order to avoid arrest. Um, this one wasn't really completely there, but some believe that the cop she killed, the former cop she killed, might have been trying to arrest her or get her to turn away from a certain life and she saw it as a risk and that's why she killed him. Number four, murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel. This mostly attributes to her more gruesome murders, the one with the six bullets rather than just two. And then... Number five, murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. The jury could only find one mitigating factor, and that is that she suffered from borderline personality disorder. While she was in prison, she constantly tried to claim that the prison was mistreating and abusing her. From things like making her food inedible on purpose by defecating and urinating in her food, or putting bugs in her food to the guards threatening to rape her, eventually leading her to try to speed up her death sentence by changing her statements. So she was originally given the death penalty via the electric chair, right? But Florida started allowing prisoners to choose their method of execution in 2000. And her execution was in 2002. And although I couldn't find anything online proving or disproving that that's why she was killed by lethal injection instead I believe that's probably the case because she was put to death after that decision was made when the day approached for her execution she was asked what she would want for her last meal and she refused to give an answer so she was given a single cup of coffee On the day she was executed, families of all the victims were present, along with some media and people who had caught interest in the case. Based on eyewitness accounts, when the time came, she entered the death chamber with a huge grin on her face. And her final words, when asked if she had any, were, Yes, I would just like to say, I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back, like Independence Day with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie big mothership and all, and I'll be back, I'll be back." So that's this case, and if you couldn't tell already, it has led to a lot of controversy over the years on whether or not she was actually raped, if she actually deserved the death penalty, and just about her overall mental state. Based on the facts, I personally am led to believe that her traumatic childhood and adulthood eventually just led to her having a psychotic break. I can't say what the trigger was that set it off, but I think inside she really did think that those men were attacking her, whether they were or not. But no matter what you believe, if her mental state was all an act or not, there is no denying that she started, ended, and lived in tragedy. Well, thanks for joining us for today's case. Hope to catch you on the next one.